I'm Pastor Michael. We are doing a sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy. And one of the major themes in Deuteronomy is the conquest of Canaan. And it comes up again and again. We saw it in chapter 2. We saw it again in chapter 7. And we're going to see it again here in chapter 9. And then it comes up periodically when we will get to the case law starting in chapter 12. Now, this is a challenge for us because the conquest is one of the major reasons why people reject Christianity today. Because the violence, the slaughter of whole societies, it's appalling, right? It violates our conscience. How can this be in the Bible? Um, How can a God of love condone, let alone command, such a thing and yet he does command it? When you look to Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 2, this is what it says. Listen. God says to the people of Israel, you must devote them, meaning the Canaanite people, to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. And so what do we do with this? We have to deal with this honestly. We can't just explain away the text or or ignore it. But we have to grapple with this with integrity to the text, and therein is the answer. Let me pause for a moment. When you read Deuteronomy you will see that Deuteronomy contains within itself its own apologetic, its own defense. And chapter 9 is a big piece of that puzzle. And so with that in mind, let's read our text. Uh, This is printed for you in the bulletin. You can follow along also on your screens at home. This is Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today, to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Verse 4. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord spoke to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Verse 6, Know therefore 
that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, Horeb is um, just another name for Sinai, Mount Sinai. You provoked the Lord to wrath and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. This is the word of God. So I have two points. This is the outline. Number one, we're going to see that the conquest is judgment day. And then number two, we're going to see that salvation is by grace alone. So number one, the conquest is judgment day. So the text tells us very clearly. I don't know if you got that. The reason the Canaanites are being destroyed is because of their wickedness. We see this at the end of verse 4. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. This is repeated in verse 5, virtually the same words. Second half verse of 5 says, because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord is driving them out from before you. If you go on to read the biblical account in the first five books of Moses, you will see that the Canaanite society was full of evil and depravity. So, for example, you have a passage like Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12. Listen to this. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So from the biblical text, we know that the Canaanites practiced sorcery and all kinds of idolatry. We have other passages in the Bible that talk about their violence, their sexual immorality. This was a brutal society full of evil and injustice. And the most visceral example is the fact that the Canaanites practiced child sacrifice. You have to understand that in the Canaanite religion, when you asked something of the gods, you had to give something of value in return, in exchange. That's how it worked. And so normally, ordinarily, you would bring money or you would offer animal sacrifices or you would make some pledge of some great act of devotion. But occasionally, right, once in a while... What you asked for was so great, was so grand that the ultimate sacrifice would be required, which is that you would have to consign a child to the flames. And so this is a society in which people were disposable. Women, children, slaves. This is a land where the strong ate the weak, where power was abused, where vulnerable people were exploited. Now, what is God's response to this? There's a vivid passage that shows us 
God's just moral revulsion to this. Listen to Leviticus 18, verses 24 to 25. Listen. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land has become unclean. So that I will punish its iniquity. And the land, listen to this, will vomit out its inhabitants. And so the sin of the Canaanites was so disgusting. It was so repulsive that God could no longer stomach it. It made him nauseous. It made him want to throw up. And so he wipes the land of Canaan clean, just like you would wipe a filthy toilet clean. Now, modern people have a real problem with this. This whole idea of a God of retribution and punishment, a God who would smite evildoers, it doesn't fit with the modern intuition of a God of gentleness and love. And then people will say, what about Jesus' teaching? Jesus says, love your enemies. He doesn't say strike them down. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with this? The first thing is I want to show you that Jesus actually spoke of judgment quite often. In fact, in fact, there is no one in the Bible who spoke more often about hell and judgment with more blood-curdling vividness than Jesus. So, for example, you have a passage like Matthew 13, 40 to 43, Listen, these are the words of Jesus. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And so Jesus is saying, just like you would gather weeds together and burn them, so also in the same way, all evildoers and lawbreakers will be gathered together and then thrown into a fiery furnace. And then the righteous will shine like the stars forever and ever, and that is how human history will end. And therefore, don't you see that Jesus' teaching is not in contradiction to the conquest, it is in continuity with it. That's the first point I want to make. Jesus' teaching and the conquest of Canaan fit together. They flow together. The second point I'd like to make, and this is a bit of a paradox, but you know, modern people, we really hate this idea of a final judgment. And yet at the same time, we yearn for it. We yearn for it. I want to give you an an illustration, and um, it's a little bit of a trivial illustration, but it points to a deeper truth. So bear with me. Several years ago, I was um, listening to a podcast with uh, Ezra Klein. 
And the Ezra Klein had um, on his show a guest. Um, she was a professor. She was a... Let, let me pause for what seems to be a helicopter. No, a propeller plane. So on the podcast, Ezra Klein was interviewing um, this professor. She was a scholar of... Um, of the legal system, and on the show, she was making this argument, right? She said, you know, the legal system doesn't actually give us justice. That was her point. The legal system doesn't actually give us justice. And the reason, she said, is because the gears of the system turn so slowly. The process is so long and attenuated, right? There's so many parties negotiating every step of the way that in the end, she says, the final result doesn't really satisfy anyone. It doesn't please anyone in the end. And that's so frustrating. And she says, one day she came upon these videos on YouTube. Apparently, there's this whole genre of videos on YouTube that are real live videos. You know, they're not staged. And on the videos, you see a bully picking on some poor kid. And this poor kid is just taking it, right? He's just sort of passively enduring it until he reaches his breaking point. And then suddenly, he decides to fight back. And he fights back so ferociously that the bully gets more than he had bargained for. And then the bully gets what he so richly deserved, which is humiliation and defeat. And this legal scholar, right, she says she's mesmerized by these videos. And she asked herself this question, you know, why are these videos so satisfying to watch? And this is her answer. Listen to this. She says, we live in a world of imperfect justice. We live in a world where the punishment so often does not fit crime. And yet, in these two-minute video clips, she calls them little morality plays. She says the bully gets exactly what he deserves. And it's like poetic justice, right? It's proportional. It fits the crime. It's just. And she says, you know, it's not just me. These videos are hugely popular. They've garnered millions of views. She says, why is that? She says, because there's something deep in the human heart that longs for perfect justice. Because no one who sees injustice just shrugs their shoulders and says, oh, well, oh, well. The problem, I think, is that we're afraid that God's justice is much like human justice, corrupt and weak. But the Bible says that God's justice is perfect and pure. He understands every situation perfectly. His wisdom is limitless. His timing is perfect. The punishment is always proportional. It's never excessive or insufficient. His judgment is always righteous and true, and therefore, we can trust Him. 
Or consider this. If there is no divine judge, then let me tell you, people will take matters into their own hands. If people don't have confidence that in the end, everything will be revealed, and there will be a final reckoning in which everything will be made right, unless people have confidence in that, they will take matters into their own hands. But the Bible says that at the end of human history, there will be a judgment day, and the wicked will be thrown into a fiery furnace, and the righteous will shine like the stars. And the book of Deuteronomy is telling us that that judgment day is the conquest of Canaan. It's brought forward in time, miniature in scale, and it's a preview of this final resolution that our hearts are longing for in which heaven and hell will be determined. That's what Deuteronomy is saying. The conquest is judgment day brought forward in time. So that leads me to my second point, salvation by grace alone. So the logical conclusion, okay, follow with me. The logical conclusion is that, is that if the Canaanites are being stripped of their land because of their wickedness, then it must be the case that the Israelites are being given that same land because of their righteousness. Because that would be fair. If the Canaanites are being judged on the basis of their moral record, then the Israelites should be also judged on the basis of their moral record. Or at the very least, the Israelites should be just a little less wicked than the Canaanites. Otherwise, if they're the same it would be completely unfair, completely unfair. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that there is a high school. And at this high school, there's a student named Susie. Now, Susie is the student body president. But one day, Susie goes to a rowdy party. And at this party, there's drinking, things get out of hand, There's destruction of property. And so the police are brought in. And the police arrest the ringleaders, sort of the the worst offenders. And among them is Susie. Susie is arrested and booked for public intoxication. And she spends the night in the county jail. The next morning, the school administration meets. And after some discussion, they decide to strip Susie of her office because of her violation of the Code of Ethics. And in her place, they decide to appoint Tom, who is her vice president. And he is now, they appoint him as the new student body president. But suppose that Tom was also at the same party. And Tom was also one of the ringleaders. And he was also arrested on the same charge, public intoxication. And in fact, he also spent the night in the county jail 
with Susie. If that was the case, there would be a public outcry. Right. I'm going to pause one more time. That's my third one. And I'm, I'm just halfway through. So hopefully that's the last one. Okay. So what would happen? There would be a public outcry, right? People would say, that's not fair. <laughs> if they're both guilty of the same crime, then neither of them should be student body president because they should be judged on the same standard. If the Canaanites are being stripped of the land because of their wickedness, the only way that it would be fair for the Israelites to be given that same land is, because, is if they had some, at least some kind of righteousness that they could claim. But listen to verse 4 in our passage. Let me tell you, verse 4 is one of the most astonishing verses in all of the Bible. I believe in all of world literature, okay? Listen to verse 4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. So what is this text saying? It's saying that Israel has no righteousness. It says it in verse 4. It says it again in verse 5. It says it again in verse 6. Did you notice that? Three times Moses repeats himself. Do you know why? Because it's so counterintuitive. And then in verses 7 through 8, he says to Israel, from the day you came out of Egypt and all through the wilderness, you have been a rebellious, stiff-necked people. And when you were at Mount Sinai, that's Horeb in our text, you so provoked the Lord to wrath that you were under the sentence of death. You deserved to die. And then for the rest of chapter 9, he goes on to retell in excruciating detail the story of the golden calf and sort of the pagan revelry and worship that Israel had engaged in. What is the point? What is the point? Here it is. Israel is just as wicked. It is just as idolatrous as the Canaanites. There is no practical difference. Do you hear me? Israel is morally indistinguishable from the Canaanites because they deserve death and judgment just as much as the Canaanites do. And then the natural question, the question that we're all asking is why? Why should Israel be given the promised land? And the answer is because of God's election. Because before the beginning of time, God set his love and his favor on Israel above all other peoples. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and I really encourage you to read Deuteronomy 7 it is a breathtaking chapter. 
This is what it says in verse 6. Listen to this. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord chose you and set his love on you. Now, I know this is a huge topic. We could spend a lot of time on this, which we're not going to do because I want to go on and talk about other things. But let me just say one brief thing, relatively brief thing. I want you to see that salvation by grace alone, which is what this passage is teaching, salvation by grace alone necessitates the doctrine of election. You cannot have salvation by grace alone unless there is God's sovereign election. Otherwise, it is not of grace because it has nothing to do with Israel's worthiness. It has nothing to do with any merit or any righteousness in Israel. So then what is the reason? Or let me put it this way. Why are you a Christian and somebody else is not? Why are you saved and somebody else, your non-believing friend is not? And you might say, well, it's because I believe. It's because I have faith. Yes, but why do you believe? Why do you have faith and your unbelieving friend does not have faith and if you say well you know i'm not sure maybe it's because i was just a little bit more humble or or maybe it's because i'm just a little bit smarter or just a little bit more spiritual than my friend don't you see whatever your explanation is that's your merit that's to your credit and then it's not of grace the correct answer why, do you, why are you saved and someone else is not saved? The correct answer is because before the foundations of the earth, God chose you and he loves you. He made you his treasured possession. And then you might say, why? Why does God love me? And the answer is God loves you because he loves you. That's not a circular answer. It just means that the reason has to do with God. It's not arbitrary. It's not random. It's not like God is sort of throwing darts on the board. Who should I save from hell? Oh, that's how I know. Otherwise, the dart is the one choosing. No, God especially chose you. God especially, particularly loves you. It's just that you have done nothing to deserve that love. Do you understand? And therefore... Salvation is by grace alone. It's a free gift. You cannot earn this love. How can you buy when you have no money? So that's what I'm gonna that's all I'm gonna say on predestination. I know that's a little bit of a bombshell. Let that cook your noodle for a while, and then if you have a question, come and talk with me. But I want to go on. And here I want us to think about the implications of salvation by grace alone. Because when you understand this, when you grasp this with your heart, it will transform you. It will revolutionize your life. What do I mean? You know, when you look at two Christians and they're both going to church, one is ho-hum, you know, they're just sort of going through the motions 
but the other has this spiritual life. You could just sense in them this vitality, this joy, this power, spiritual power in their life. And it's the reason is because they have grasped this truth. And I want to help you today to grasp this truth with your heart. Most people, most people, even after they become Christians, we fall back to a kind of performance-based relationship with God because the default mode of the human heart is self-salvation. Because deep down inside, most of us believe that we are good, decent, we are a good, decent person. We're not perfect, but basically, we're a good person. This is at the core of our self-image. We are a decent person. And this is why most people get very defensive when they are criticized. Because the criticism is essentially saying, actually, you're not really a good person. And that is so threatening. That is so destabilizing to our identity that people have to fight back. They have to come up with some reason, some explanation, some misunderstanding that that absolves them of that charge. And actually, it goes both ways. We hate criticism. Oh, but we love to dish it out. One of the um, one of the most profound books that I've ever read is *The Righteous Mind* by Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan Haidt is a professor of moral psychology at NYU, and in his book he says it is very important for virtually every person. It's very important that they know they're a good person. But here's the question: How do you know you're a good person? That's the rub. How do you know you're a good person? He says, you can't compare yourself to God or to some absolute standard like the Ten Commandments because that's just too crushing. And he says, you can't um, sort of just tell yourself, despite what anyone thinks, I know I'm a good person because that's not very compelling. That, That won't convince you. He says, instead, virtually everyone does it by comparing themselves to others, particularly to bad people. And this is what he says in his book. Listen to this. He says, you define your righteousness in opposition to the wickedness of others. That's how you do it. And in the book, he says, one of the main ways people do this today is through politics. You know, we live in an age of moral outrage. And, you know, we will read an article that talks about, you know, what evil people are doing out there. And, oh, it makes us so mad. It makes us so upset and and angry. Now, why would we do that to ourselves, right? Why would we purposely read an article that gets us all riled up and upset? And Jonathan Haidt says it's because we get something out of it. What we get out of it is this wonderful feeling that we are part of a righteous cause. And because you are on the right side of this political issue, that's how you know you're a good person. 
And listen, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying it's wrong to be politically engaged. I'm just using this as an example. So often people use politics as a vehicle of their self-righteousness. But you know, people do this with anything, with everything. Here's the question. Why can't we admit? Why can't we just admit that we are wretched sinners? That we are hopelessly lost? That we justly deserve wrath? Do you know why? Because that would put us completely at the mercy of God. And if God were to give us unmerited mercy, well then, He can ask anything of us. But if to some degree we can say, you know, I'm not totally bad. You know, there's some good in me. Then we're still in control. There's a limit to what God can ask of us. I mean, God can ask for certain things, sure. But come on, it has to be reasonable. God can't ask for everything. And if we are good, there's a certain, I don't know, sort of minimum standard of living that God has to maintain for us, right? Because to the degree that we are good, to that degree, God owes us. So that if we are good, then God can't allow suffering and disasters into our life because that's not part of the deal. But if it's all of mercy, if all we deserve is judgment and death, then God doesn't owe us anything. Do you see how threatening that is? You see, for most people, the greatest obstacle to believing the gospel is not your sin, it's your righteousness. It's not that you're too wicked to believe, it's that you're too good. Because the gospel is an existential threat to your self-image. And for most people, it is too traumatic to believe. It's too traumatic. But if we lay down our righteousness, if we stop trying to bargain with God, and if we fall into His arms of grace, we will experience a wellspring of joy and power and spiritual life. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says this, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Do you believe this? Do you believe that you contributed nothing? That despite the fact that on the outside your life looks put together, actually deep down inside you know you're a mess. You have no merit. You have no righteousness of your own. And therefore, if God is going to save you, it is only by His grace. It is all of His mercy all the way down. And when you understand that, then your eyes will be opened to how much He loves you. And then you will see the infinite cost to God to rescue you from your sins. When Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, if you read the gospel accounts, it gives us a set of curious details. Luke chapter 23, verse 45 says that 
when Jesus was hanging on the cross from the third to the sixth hour, it says the sun was blotted out and there was darkness over the land. Matthew 27 verse 51 says that when Jesus died, the moment he died, the earth trembled and the rocks split open. If you read your Bible, you know that these are not just random details. These are signs. These are indications of Judgment Day. The Bible says that on Judgment Day, every sin, every wicked thought and deed will be exposed and will be brought to justice. And God's wrath will be poured out. Who can stand on such a day? But the Bible says that if your life is hidden in Christ, then listen to me. The punishment for your sins fell on him. Colossians 2.14 literally says, the record of our sins was nailed to the cross. And therefore, they are no longer counted against you. And now in Christ, you are washed clean. You are clean. You remember, Jesus said, at the end of history, the righteous will shine like the stars forever and ever. Don't you see? It's not your righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness imputed to you. His perfect record credited to you. That's the gospel. Ephesians 2.8.9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast this is the gospel let's pray almighty god it's a wondrous truth that in christ we are sinners saved by grace we are loved failures. But we confess that everything inside of us protests against this. We want to claim and hold for ourselves some shred of internal goodness. But we understand that if we could just surrender our righteousness and we could fall into your arms of grace, we will experience eternal life and joy and power. Lord, help us. Give us this faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.